Uh, we have, in the month of June, I've looked through parts of some highlights from the Gospel of Mark. I've titled this the Invitation Series. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus invites his disciples, and he says, come, follow me. And we built up to Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, where Jesus invites his disciples to come and to be with him. It's this invitation to be with, with the intention of sending them out. And last week, we built up to Mark chapter 6, where Jesus sends them out on their first missionary journey. And we titled that, The Invitation to be Sent. And this morning, as you see on the PowerPoint, or maybe in the bulletin insert, For the sermon notes page, this is the invitation to expand. And if you're like me, when I see that word expand, my first thought is like eating a lot of food and expanding that way. But that's not what I mean by that. Uh, When Jesus invites his disciples to expand, the invitation is to expand their worldview. The lens through which they see the world. The invitation is for them to change and the invitation is to expand the borders of the kingdom of God. Uh, We all have certain ways of seeing the world. When we look at people, when we look at people, sometimes we see labels. In fact, a lot of the times we see labels. Sometimes that's just natural. Uh, We look at people and we may say, that person, you know, political views, we may say that person's a Democrat. And once you label someone, that's how you view that person, or maybe vice versa. You say that person's a Republican. Or when it comes to somebody of the Christian faith, depending on where they go to church or what they believe specifically, we may say that person's conservative, that person's liberal. We use these labels. You may look at someone and just label them as weird. Some of you are looking at me and you're thinking, this guy's a little weird and you've labeled me as weird. Or you may look at someone, have a conversation and say they have weird views. Someone struggled with a a sin in their past and you label them based on their sin. We label people based on age and on race. And we look at people and we label them. That's just a natural instinct. But the problem with that is that labels create distance. That's in your hand out there in the bulletin insert. Labels create distance and it creates an us versus them mentality. When we label someone, we're automatically separating ourselves from them. When I was in high school, I sat at a a large table for lunch every day, and there were several students there with me who attended the same church that I did. So we were a part of uh, the restoration movement. We didn't know that at the time. That wasn't the language that we used, but that was our background. And we had other friends that sat at the table with us that were part of the Reformation. So we were Arminian, and we didn't know it. There's a guy named Joseph Arminius from church history who kind of stood out from Calvinism and believed more in free will, and that was kind of our background, Restoration, Arminian, and a lot of our friends were from the Reformation, from Martin Luther and John Calvin, and they were Calvinists. We didn't know all that, we just knew we went to different churches, and so in the lunch table we would get in these discussions, and we would argue over who is right and who is wrong, which church is right, and we would label each other. And this would go on and on, sometimes it was all in fun, but sometimes it would turn into heated debates, high school students, talking about things we didn't really know much about. So we decided, somebody had the idea, that the best way to settle this debate is through a game of tackle football, which is, once somebody proposed that idea, we all thought, oh yeah, that's that's the best way. So we set a date on the calendar, and we had this big game in a couple weeks that was going to take place, 
The Restoration Movement background versus the Reformation. That's not what we called it, but that's what I'm calling it for this sermon. And we built it up. We invited a lot of people to come to this football game. And there was a lot riding on the game. Because we felt like whoever won the game, that's whose church was right. So we got there. Tensions were high. I mean, we were, we were playing for our church, for our people. But there was no adult supervision. And it went quickly from looking like a football game to looking more like a hockey game. A lot of fights were breaking out. Finally, some adults showed up and sent us home, and we didn't finish the game. So I'm still wondering to this day who's right and who's wrong because we didn't have a winner to the game. Uh, I'm just joking about that. But honestly, we, we labeled each other. We labeled each other based on where we went to church. We labeled each other based on what we thought we knew about each other. And that started creating a distance and that created arguing and fighting, and, and one thing leads to another. We create this us-versus-them mentality. When Jesus was on this earth, as we studied through the Gospel of Mark, as we studied through the Gospels, we see that Jesus, he didn't seem to care too much for labels. He didn't really look at people and their labels. In Mark chapter 3, when he calls his twelve apostles... We had already seen in Mark 2 that he invites this tax collector named Levi to be his disciple. And Levi worked for the Roman government. Tax collectors were hated. They were considered sinners. And Jesus says, come be my disciple. But then a part of this group is a man named Simon who's a zealot. And they were known for wanting to overthrow and rebel against the Roman occupation. And zealots were known for time to time for attacking tax collectors and attempting to murder them. And Jesus says, come, be my disciple, and he brings a zealot and a tax collector together. He didn't see labels. He didn't let that create distance and be a problem for him and his ministry. Jesus would speak with women in public, which we're about to read a story about that. Jesus saw lepers, and he touched them. He didn't shy away from them. He would go into Gentile territories, and he would compliment their faith. These are labels that defined people and who they were and who they would allow themselves to associate with and who they would not associate with. And Jesus just did not seem to see labels. The story that was read in the scripture reading this morning from Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to find our, most of our time this morning. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. We're going to see how Jesus builds bridges and he does it in a very unique way. Starting in verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. Jesus left that place and entered the vicinity of Tyre. Some of you may pronounce that Tyree. I say Tyre, and I guess I'm the one preaching right now, so we're going to go with how I pronounce it. He goes into the vicinity of Tyre. He left that place, which we're going to look at here in a little bit. That's important. He leaves a Jewish territory, and he goes intentionally into a Gentile territory. Tyre, uh, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian was a, a place of hostility uh, between Jews and the citizens of Tyre and the, those who were in the military there. There were several wars that would break out. So when Jesus enters into this place, it could be hostile. He goes anyways. He leaves a Jewish place. He goes to a Gentile place and says he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. We see this throughout Mark's gospel. It's known as the Messianic secret. It doesn't work too well. People find out about Jesus and they flock to him. And this happens here. 
Verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. So here's this desperate woman whose daughter is possessed by an impure spirit. And if you place yourself in her shoes, maybe you would do the same thing. You hear about this rabbi, this Jewish man who can heal people, and you hear that he's in your town. Well, maybe you would make that desperate move and go to him. And that's what she does. In verse 26, Mark gives us some details about her. He says, the woman was a Greek. She was a Gentile. Born in Syrian Phoenicia, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. The details that Mark gives us, she's a double outsider. Women in that culture usually did not approach men in public. She's a woman, making her an outsider, but she's also a Greek. She's a Gentile. So Mark has given us these details to show us double outsider, double label, right? Gentile and woman. Those are two labels right there. In Matthew chapter 15, Matthew has the same story, but he refers to her as the Canaanite woman. That's more of the the biblical name. We know the land of Cana, the Canaanites from the Old Testament. Canaanites uh, were raised being taught that the Jews are the ones who kicked them out of their land. Jews are taught that Canaanites are wild barbarians. And there was this distance between the two. And Jesus travels, and she comes, and she approaches him in person. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 23 and 24, I'm just kind of filling in the details of what Matthew tells us, that at first Jesus is silent. When she approaches him, he doesn't respond. And then the disciples speak up in Matthew 15, and they say, Lord, send her away. So it's almost like Jesus is testing his disciples and they fail the test. Send her away. She's she's an outsider. We don't want her approaching us, especially in public. Send her away. And now Jesus responds in Mark chapter 7 and verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now if you're being honest about what you're reading, you read that and you say, what do you do? When Jesus says something that's not very Christ-like. That's not very, that's not very nice. It doesn't sound very nice if we're just being honest. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. This doesn't even sound like Jesus. Most of the time when he's approached someone's faith, he has a conversation and he heals. But here he seems resistant. What's going on? Well, let's unpack this verse for just a moment. He says, first, let the children eat all they want. If it's first, that means it indicates there's going to be a second. The children represent the Israelites. Tekna, that's that Greek word, children. It's symbolic for the Israelites. So he's saying, first, let the children eat all they want. Now, in the New Testament, that's something we understand. Paul says the gospel is preached first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles in Romans 1.16. So first, let the children eat all they want. So there's a lot of symbolism in there. And then he says, for it's not right to take the children's bread, the Israelites' bread, and toss it to the dogs. What is this bread? Bread is something that God provides. God provides bread for the Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus provides bread in this miraculous feeding in Mark chapter 6, which we'll scan over here in just a moment. It's God who provides the bread. And he says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. That's an ethnic slur. The Jews would often refer to Gentiles as dogs. Doesn't sound very nice. 
So what's Jesus doing here? Well, I'm going to argue that, that he's being creative and he's using this as a teaching point. He's saying what you would expect a male Jewish rabbi in that culture to say to a Gentile woman. But I don't think it's what he really means. Uh, for the Jews, dogs were wild, nasty animals. For Gentiles, dogs were often household pets, especially in that Roman society. So they viewed dogs very differently. So look at her response in verse 28. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Very wise response. If I was her, I might have been a little upset. Maybe you would sense anger in my voice in responding to him. But she doesn't. She's very wise. She's very calm, cool, and collected. And it seems like what Mark is showing us as you read the entire Gospel of Mark that her response is in contrast to the religious leaders and the disciples. The religious leaders seem to be very opposed to Jesus. They don't believe in him. They don't believe in what he's doing. They don't like what he's doing. The disciples are always confused. We'll look more at that next week. The disciples seem to always be confused at what Jesus means and what he's teaching. But here, she's very wise. It's not right to... It's not right, uh, Jesus says, to uh, take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And then she responds, even the dogs eat the, eat the children's crumbs. So, great response. In uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 28, Jesus compliments her faith. He says she has great faith. So he's complimenting the faith of a Gentile. And then Mark tells us in verse 29 and 30, For such a reply, you may go. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. So he heals her. He heals the, the daughter, which he normally would do. He just doesn't normally talk to people like this. So why is this story in here? Why does Mark include this story? Out of all my years of teaching and preaching, this is probably the most requested story that I've had. People come up to me and they say, hey, will you do a lesson on the Canaanite woman, on the Syrophoenician woman? Because I don't understand it. I don't understand why Jesus talks to her the way that he does. So let me try to explain what I think is going on here. First of all, I believe that Jesus is a very creative teacher. He's a great teacher, greatest of all time. When you read through the Gospels, you see that he teaches in parables or riddles, stories. People come up to Jesus and they ask him a question, and he doesn't just give them an answer. Usually he responds with another question or another story. You read the Sermon on the Mount, you see he uses a lot of hyperbole. So Jesus is creative in the way that he teaches. I was reminded as I was studying this and thinking about the creativity of Jesus, about this girl who had gone off to college, this was several years ago, before the age of the internet, traveled across the country. So she knew when she left that fall semester, she wasn't coming home until the Christmas break, and her parents knew that. So there wasn't going to be much communication. So they drop her off at college, and they don't hear from her for a while. And a few months later, they receive a letter in the mail from their daughter, and it said, Dear Mom and Dad, I just want to clue you in as to what's going on in my life. She said, I've met a guy named Jim. Uh, Jim is older than me. Jim dropped out of high school and, and married this woman, and they have a few kids. And he, she said, Jim is leaving his wife to be with me. I'm dropping out of college. I'm moving in with him, and I'm pregnant. Love, and then she signs her name. Well, they, you can imagine their response. You haven't heard from your daughter in a few months, and that's the letter you received. That's a lot of news all at once. And then they flipped it over on the back, 
And she said, I just want to let you know that everything that you just read is completely false. None of it's true. She said, but I did get a C in French. I did fail math, and I need more money for tuition. <laughs> so what she, she's being creative. She's trying to intentionally elicit a response out of her parents. So they had this emotional response, and then they're relieved to see that none of that's true. So when they actually find out that she failed some classes and she needs more money, they're more likely to grant that request. She's being creative. You've got to hand it to her on that. Jesus is being creative here. I think when he says this to the Syrophoenician woman, he's trying to get a response out of his disciples. You know, Matthew tells us, they say, send her away. And he's silent, giving them an opportunity to respond. So we see that Jesus is being creative. I think he's being creative. But then we also have to understand this story in the larger context in Mark. I mentioned last week that Mark tells us one big gospel story but he makes up these small sub-stories along the way. Last week, we had the brackets of calling the disciples and sending the disciples. And now he's starting a new sub-story in chapter 6, and there's this miraculous feeding. You can kind of scan over the Scriptures with me if you want to. In Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 31, Jesus is going to feed the 5,000. We call it the Jewish feeding because it takes place in a Jewish area, a Jewish territory. So he feeds 5,000 plus with the loaves and the fish. You know that story. But what we, you may not catch is that Mark is showing us that Jesus is a shepherd. He's acting like a shepherd for the Jews. You know Psalms 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know that passage? Well, Jesus fulfills that role. They are like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus stands in as a shepherd for them. He sits them down in the green grass. He feeds them. He leads them beside the quiet waters. He's already stilled the waters in the storm. He's about to walk on water. He restores my soul. He's going around restoring people back to God. He's a shepherd for the Jews. Mark is letting us know that. And then in Mark chapter 6, verse 53 through 56... He goes around healing people. Now, that's something that he normally did. That shouldn't be a surprise. So there's the Jewish feeding, the Jewish healing. And then in chapter 7, leading up to our main text for this morning, he has this conversation with the religious leaders about what's clean and what's unclean. They are accusing Jesus and his disciples of not following the traditions. And Jesus accuses them of focusing on the external things. You're focused on washing and on all the rituals and how you dress and how you look. And Jesus says, it's more about the heart, what's going on inside of you. And then in Mark chapter 7 and verse 19, the last part of that verse, in parentheses, Mark tells us by saying this, Jesus declares all foods clean. That's a huge statement. That's a huge thing to just put as like a side note in parentheses over there. To the Jews, their diet is part of what distinguished them from the other nations. Abstaining from certain foods, that helped make them look different from the pagan nations around them. And then Jesus comes along and he declares all foods clean. Well, what's he doing? It seems like he's paving the way for God's greater plan. That God's plan wasn't just to save the Israelites But through Abraham, through that covenant, God's plan was to reach everyone. So Jesus intentionally 
leaves a Jewish area and travels, Mark 7, 24, to Tyre. He travels to a Gentile territory, and he heals this woman's daughter. And then he heals someone else. So he's healing people not just in Jewish territories, but now in Gentile territories. And then in Mark chapter 8, there's another miraculous feeding. Did you know there was two? He feeds the 4,000. And then the numbers are important, and maybe that will be for another day at another time. But I think the point Mark is trying to make in feeding the Jews and now feeding the Gentiles is that he's a shepherd for both. He's not just a shepherd for the Israelites, but Jesus is also a shepherd for all people. This is God's greater plan, and he's trying to open his disciples' eyes to see that, to broaden their worldview or to expand. Okay, so we see that. Now, if you are in the first century, imagine you're in Rome. You've been kicked out of the synagogue because people are starting to realize that Jews and Christians are different. So you're not allowed to worship in the synagogue any longer. You're in Rome. You're at somebody's house. There's a mixture of Jewish background and Gentile backgrounds in this house worshiping together. And you receive this letter from Mark and someone's reading it. What do you hear? What are you hearing when you see that Jesus is acting as a shepherd for Jews and Gentiles? I think the first thing that they might hear and that we need to hear also is to expect it to be messy. They can expect that this is going to be difficult for them. There's two worlds colliding. Two totally different backgrounds. You have the Jews and all their rituals and the way they do life. And then the Gentiles and their pagan background and You know, never before they believed in a monotheistic God, and they don't have all these rituals, and they're coming together. We see this throughout the New Testament. We see that it's difficult. It's difficult for the Jews to accept the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this dream. You remember this dream? And there's a sheet that comes down, and there's all these four-footed animals. And God says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter argues with God, and he says, surely not. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And God has to convince Peter. He has to motivate Peter. Times are changing. It's time to expand the borders of the kingdom of God beyond just this small subset. We're reaching the rest of the world. So Gentiles are converted in Acts chapter 10. And then even in Acts chapter 11, Peter has to explain it to his fellow Jewish leaders, and they have difficulty with it as well. It's not easy. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons that Jesus responds to this Syrophoenician, this Canaanite woman, the way that he does, is he is using that as commentary to show us it's not going to be easy. It may look a little messy. I have a friend who is a minister, and their church, this is in in the east, it's not here in Texas, but their church came up with a vision, kind of like Pine Tree has, and a part of their vision was to reach people for Christ, to make disciples. That's the heart of this church as well, and they wanted to do that not just in other countries, but they wanted to do that in their own community, so they started to. They started reaching out, going to people's houses and praying with them, and and eventually people from the community started coming to church, but a lot of these people had never been to church before. So they didn't know how to look. They didn't know how to act in in proper ways that sometimes it's expected. And it was a little messy, and they had a big church-wide event. And after the event was over, a lady that was in charge of the event came up to my friend who was a minister, and she said, I need to know, 
are those people coming back next year? And he stopped and he thought about it. He said, those people? I said, of course they're coming back. That's part of why we exist. But what she didn't realize is that she was labeling them. Those people. She was creating distance and she had created this us versus them mentality without even knowing it. And one of the things they had to sit down and discuss is if we're really committed to making disciples, we have to expect there will be some difficulties. It may get a little messy. After all, when you read the New Testament, you can't help but see that. Read Paul's letters, and that's what he's talking about over and over, is this two worlds colliding between the Jews and the Gentiles, but they're the body of Christ, so they have to learn to worship and to live together. So I think... That's a message we need to hear, and that's a message that they would have heard in that first century audience. And I think they also would have heard, expect it to cause some reflection. Probably some self-reflection. As they worship together, as they get to know one another, these barriers and these boundaries are broken down. Just as we saw Jesus walk right past some of those normal boundaries, things are changing. And they're starting to accept the Gentiles. And as they build these relationships with them, I imagine, as it did for the Apostle Paul, they start to see their own brokenness, their own sinfulness. And together, Jews and Gentiles can unite around their need for grace, their need for a Savior in Jesus. You can unite around that. Uh, Several years ago, I was at the Tulsa Workshop. They don't have that anymore. Some of you maybe have attended that in the past. Uh, there was a guy who was speaking. He's a preacher at a, a larger congregation in a really large city outside of Texas. And their church was growing. But it wasn't just growing because people were placing memberships who were already Christians. They were, they were reaching their community for people who, who didn't know Christ. They were making disciples. And so I came up to him and I just said, man, I got to know, what are you all doing? You know, churches around you and their state were struggling, but they were growing. They were thriving. The kingdom of God was expanding there. And he gave me a very simple response. And he said, we're trying to create a place where the wounded can come find healing. And someone else started talking to him and he walked away. And that's all he gave me. We're trying to create a place where the wounded can come find healing. It reminded me of that old saying, Churches are not a club for the religious elite. We're more like rehab for sinners or hospital for sinners. As I have spent time with those who are different from me, who may not share the same label that I have, as we form relationships and unite around Christ, what I have started to see in my own life is my own brokenness, my own sinfulness, and that Christ can unite Jews and Gentiles Christ can unite all of us together as well. It's not going to be an easy road, but if we're committed to making disciples, we will go with where God leads us and take part in this expanding of the borders of the kingdom of God. Uh, this morning, we're going to sing another song. Uh, the custom is to have an invitation. And if you didn't know this, we're going to have shepherds scattered around the building. Some will be in the back. If you need to speak with a shepherd, I encourage you to do that this morning. You can do that privately. If you need to come up front for any reason to respond to this invitation, you can do that also. And if you would, let's stand and sing.
I will sing.